Geowich, and welcome back to the study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to the beloved physician, St. Luke. I'm not sure if you can hear it in my voice or not. I'm a little bit sick today, so yeah, my voice is usually annoying, but today it might be a little bit more annoying than usual, or who knows, maybe it'll actually be more bearable. I'm not sure. Maybe there's no change. I don't know, but sure. Just if you hear a difference in my voice, that's why I've got a cold or something like that. Anyway. I'm not, that's not going to change anything apart from my voice probably so I'm not going to be rushing through this or going really slow or whatever it's going to be pretty much business as usual now today we will be um, studying the 71st, 72nd, 73rd, 74th and 75th verses of the first chapter of Luke's Gospel something which you might find interesting is that if we were to cover on average one chapter of the Bible a week then I would preach through the whole thing in just over 17 years. At the rate we are currently going, if I were to finish the first chapter of Luke's Gospel today, which I won't, and cover every other chapter in the Bible in the same amount of time as it would have taken to cover all of Luke's chapter, uh, all, of, yeah, all of Luke chapter 1, again, assuming that we finish today, it would take about 53 years. However, I won't be finishing it today. If I were to finish it next week, then it would have been four weeks spent in Luke's Gospel just in the first chapter. Now, if we were to spend that amount of time on every chapter, it would take me just over 70 years to preach the entire Bible, which actually is like the one thing I want to do with my life. By the time I die, I want to have preached either the entire Bible or at least the vast majority of it. But now, I hope this gives you um, a good idea as to how vast God's Word is. If you were to reach just one chapter, uh, read just one chapter every week, it would take you nearly 18 years to finish. If I started reading the Bible one chapter a week, starting the day I was born, I'd only have finished a few months ago. That's how staggering it is. That's how staggeringly big it is. Like I said, I hope this helps you to appreciate how vast God's word truly is. His inspired, inspiring word. Speaking of which, it's time that we actually get around to reading it. I'm going to read twice. First, I'm going to read through the entire passage um, of Zechariah's prophecy, which is Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. Then I'm going to come back and reread the specific verses which we will be studying today, um, that being verses 71 to 75. So let's get started. Luke 1, 67 to 80. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has uh, visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him on our days. A new child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now I'll read the specific verses which we will be studying today. So this is Luke chapter 1, 
verses 71 to 75. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show that the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Originally, I was only going to do verse 71, which is that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. But as I sort of read and reread the surrounding passages, I realized I'll need more than this to just, you know, for context and so on. So I was going to do 72 as well. And then I just did, you know, I'll, I said, you know, I'll just do 71 to 75 um, because, well, I could probably, I could probably do a full 20, 30 minutes on just each one of these verses I think they just it just makes the most sense to do them all together so that it's just easier to understand the uh, the whole thing. So we'll start off with verse 71. And here we're starting off with a promise. Now, this promise sounds like one straight out of the prosperity gospel. And yet, here it is. If I were to say to you, you know, I was reading this book and it promised me that I would be saved from all of my enemies... And then I asked you to name the book. You might say it was something by Joel Osteen or Kenneth Copeland or Joyce Myers or any other one of them. I don't know, Benny Hinn, one of them types. But no, here it is in the Bible. So what does it mean? Well, I don't think it's promising us earthly prosperity. I don't think it's saying that once you start to follow God and slip the local pastor a bit of the green stuff, if you know what I'm saying, which is what they all claim, um, all the prosperity preachers, then all of a sudden, everyone who is in any way against you, in even the smallest sort of a way, will suddenly fail at everything you do and no longer be able to prosper over you. Now, I don't think that's what it says. I think it says something different. I believe that the enemy here refers to two possible parties. The first is the devil and his lot, his angels, demons, whatever you want to call them. The second is the unbelievers. Now, I'll start with the devil. Obviously, the devil is our enemy. He caused the fall, for example. However... I think we give him more credit than he's due. You see, we often elevate the, de- the, the devil to being this sort of godlike figure. We act as if he's everywhere, behind every bush or every curtain waiting to jump out. God and God alone can be in more than one place at one time. He's everywhere at one time. The devil cannot be in two places at once. If he's off, if he's off in America right now, he's not in the room with me. And if he's in the room with me, he's not off in America. For example, he's one entity, one being, and he's in one place. Now, he's got a full army of angels behind him, and they might be off doing stuff all over the place. But the devil himself, he's not, you know, uh, he, he, he's not omniscient he, or omnipotent, whatever the word is. He can't be in two places at once. He's not responsible, therefore, for every sin. Here's, here's, here's a fun little thing. Chances are the devil doesn't even know your name personally. Doesn't know you, doesn't know who you are, hasn't a clue about you. Or if he does, he's not personally involved with you unless you're a higher up. If you're a very public religious figure, perhaps, then maybe. Or maybe not. I don't know how he works. Maybe he goes after the really public religious figures. Maybe he just picks on whoever he can find. I'm not sure. But chances are, well, yeah, sure, some of his angels, some of his demons probably do know about you. He himself probably doesn't. Or at least, 
I can't imagine that he would. That he would. I may be wrong, but that's just the way I see it. I, I don't think he would. But there, there comes a problem with saying that the devil is sort of responsible for everything because we lose accountability, and that's what a lot of people say, is that the devil is responsible for everything. They say, oh, I sinned, and the devil made me do it. I did this, and the devil made me do it. The devil made me do this, and that, and the third. That's not how it works. If we actually go back to Genesis, and we look at the Genesis account, the devil suggested it. The devil talked them into it. He didn't make them do it. If Adam and Eve had just gone, no, we're not doing that. The devil could have talked and talked and talked and it wouldn't have worked. How do we know this? Well, because the second Adam, which is Christ, was in a similar position. If we look at the situation Adam was in, he was in a garden surrounded by all these fruits, all these things he could have ever wanted. He, he wanted for nothing, essentially, and the, in, at least in terms of food. And the devil comes up to him and says, yes, you can have all these hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of fruits. Or you could have this one, the only one in the garden God has told you not to eat. You could have that. And because of man's sinful heart, that's the one Adam chose. You look at Jesus. Jesus was in pretty much the opposite position. He had absolutely no food. He was just coming out the other end of a 40-day fast, meaning he would have been absolutely starving. He would have been ravenous. No food for 40 days. And the devil offers him one piece of food. All he's got to do is take the food and break a promise to God. And Jesus, in his weakened state, his desperate and needy state, said no. Whereas Adam, in his abundant state, said a yes. Why? Because Adam was sinful and Jesus was not. Adam's sinful nature made him do it. The devil didn't make him do anything. The devil suggested it. He didn't make it happen. We need to take more accountability for our sins. When I sin, it's on me. It's not on anyone else. It's my sin. Jesus didn't die to take my sins away from the devil. But the devil sins away from me. He died to take my sins away from me. So, we need to be more accountable. And I have a story um, about this that I usually tell to get this point across. And it's just, it's such a, I don't know if I want to say sad, disgusting, disturbing, horrible, whatever word. Maybe you can decide after you hear it. So there's this pastor. I won't name names of the pastor, the church, or anything like that. But I used to listen to this guy a lot on Spotify. When I go for my runs, he had hour-long sermons. I'd put them on and I'd listen. This was months and months ago. It might even be close to half a year ago now. I'm not sure. Um, but I used to really like listening to this stuff. And when my, I guess you could say my, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Discernment, that's it, <laughs> sorry. My discernment wasn't top-notch. Or at least it wasn't where it is now. And so because this guy occasionally gave lip service to sin and to the gospel and so on, I didn't notice a lot of his more problematic theology. I say he was orthodox, but towing the line of prosperity, that sort of a thing, looking back on it now. And he told a story once, or he was doing a sermon, um, it's not you, it's a Jezebel spirit or something like that. Basically saying, you know, all about the Jezebel spirit, that sort of thing, um, which isn't something that's in the Bible. There's a character called Jezebel that's in the Bible and he was basing this character of the Jezebel spirit off the character in the Bible called Jezebel. But the Bible character Jezebel isn't a spirit, but he was claiming it was. Anyway, so he said, it's not you, it's a Jezebel spirit. 
if you have sexual urges, it's not you, it's a Jezebel spirit. Simply sexual urges, it's a Jezebel spirit. And one of the stories he gave was of another friend of his who was a pastor. And this pastor, he was a fine guy, he was a sound guy, until one day he got a computer, and then he was exposed to all the sexual stuff online. And then that escalated and escalated and escalated, until eventually he found himself messaging minors. And one day, he went to meet up with a 13-year-old girl, I believe 13. Now, luckily, it wasn't a 13-year-old girl, it was a police thing, um, it was a police woman or whatever, pretending on the internet to be a 13-year-old girl, and when the guy turns up, um, they arrest him, so he's sent to prison. And then this pastor telling the story, not the guy who got caught, but the guy who I used to listen to, he's on the pulpit in front of his entire church with people online. He has a YouTube channel, like I say, Spotify, all this stuff, listening from all over the world, from the church itself. Excuse me. He says, after telling that story, that wasn't him. That was a Jezebel spirit. That is absolutely disgusting. And that's what happens when we say the devil is responsible or the devil's angels are responsible for our sin. When we refuse to take accountability, when we refuse to say I'm a sinner, or when we can say I'm a sinner, but we refuse to accept when we actually sin, I'm a sinner, but I don't sin. I'm, a, I'm one of them rare sinners who doesn't actually sin. That's not how it works. I'm a sinner, I sin. And when we refuse to accept either one of those things, this is what happens. A man tried to meet up with a 13-year-old girl and a pastor from behind the pulpit was defending him, saying that's not him. That was a Jezebel spirit. That's nonsense. That was entirely him. Now, it may not be who he used to be. He may never have done that sort of a thing if he hadn't got his hand on the internet. I don't know how he led himself down that path, but he led himself down that path. At any point, he could have said, no, this is wrong. I need to stop. And he could have stopped right then and there. But he didn't. And that's the way sin is. When we sin, we freely choose to do it. We freely choose to do it. We're not coaxed. We're not coerced. We freely choose to do it. But with that being said, the devil is still our enemy. The devil is still against us. The devil... Though against us, he's not responsible for our sins. He may lead us to sin. His angels may lead us to sin. But he is not responsible for our sins. Next is people. If we go to Romans chapter 5 verse 10, we see that it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by this life? People who are not saved are enemies of God. Before we were saved, we were enemies of God. You were an enemy of God. I was an enemy of God. But here's the thing. God doesn't treat his enemies the way other people do, at least not all of them. Because when we look at people who have enemies, they try to get at their enemies, they try to get back at their enemies, they try to hurt their enemies. But God 
looks into the crowd of his enemies and he handpicks from them a few who will no longer be his enemies but rather will be his children. If I was the enemy of any other God, if any other God existed and I was their enemy, they would have killed me. But I was the enemy of God Almighty, the one true God, the sovereign Lord of all creation, and he didn't kill me, he saved me. That's how good God is. But now that we are God's children, now that he's made us his children, his enemies are our enemies. But we don't treat them the way, like I say, other gods might treat their enemies. We are children of the one true God, which means we try and bring the saving gospel to our enemies. We don't pray for their destruction. We pray for their salvation. Jesus taught, pray for your enemies. They are enemies of God, but so were we. If you go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, we see that it says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We were enemies of God. He changed that. Not us. He saved us. If we go now to verse 72. Here we see that God's main goal is to show mercy to his people. And of course he shows mercy to everybody. The, you know, the clouds rain on the good and the bad. Uh, the, the just and the sinner. I forget the exact wording, but it's. You know, that sort of a thing. God God is in some way merciful to everybody. When he chooses not to um, kill the sinner on the spot for their sin, he's showing them mercy. Even if ultimately that person will be in hell, God shows them mercy. Every second, every instant they are alive is an infinite amount of mercy towards that person. But this is not a new goal. This goal of showing his people mercy. This is one which he has been working on forever, since the beginning of time, before the beginning of time. And we see this in the Old Testament also. Now, people are so quick to try and separate the Old Testament God from the New Testament God. They say that the God of the Old Testament was mean and horrible and nasty and so on. Whereas the God of the New Testament is just such a lovely fella. The kind of guy you could hang out with. You know, that's ignoring the, some small things like the two people in the book of Acts God executes on the spot for lying. As well as, you know, the entire book of Revelation. Like I said, small things. It also ignores a lot of what God did in the Old Testament, like freeing his people in the Exodus or staying with his people throughout the Old Testament despite their constant disobedience, despite the fact that they wouldn't stay with him. They went off and found other gods, but he never went off and found another group of people. Sometimes he saved Gentiles into the fold, but he never went off and abandoned his own people. Not only is God not different in the two Testaments, but he's also not the caricature people draw of him. He's never this mean bully, nor is he some hippie pushover. He is God Almighty, sovereign Lord of creation, redeemer and saviour of his people. He is holy and just while also being righteous and loving. And we need to remember that. Moving on quite quickly now, verse 73, it says, uh, here we see that God made a promise. 
And as we've noted many times in this series, God keeps his promises. Moving on to verse 74. Here we get a clearer idea of what Zechariah is talking about when it comes to being saved from our enemies. I sort of brushed over it before, but I didn't really go into too much detail. What does it mean to be saved from our enemies? What does it truly mean? I didn't discuss it so much before, but I was sort of saving it from here. To be saved from our enemies, I think ultimately will mean are going to heaven. The verse says that, um, you know, we'll be saved from our enemies. We'll be saved from their reach. They can't get us in heaven. They can't get onto us in heaven. We won't be focused on our enemies anymore. Now we can focus on God. Now we can focus on worshipping him. And that becomes very clear in the next verse, verse 75. Zechariah is talking about heaven undeniably. Only there will we be in holiness and righteousness. I will read um, verse 75 for you to show you. Uh, just again, uh, verse 74 and 75. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We will serve him without fear. Whatever it is he's talking about, we will serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Now, I don't know about you. I'm neither holy nor righteous. I believe that will change once I get to heaven. I'm being sanctified at the moment by the loving hand of God. I'm not holy. I'm not righteous. Only in heaven will these things be true. Only in heaven will we serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness. We will focus only on him and not on our enemies because we will not have enemies. We will only have sovereign God who we will worship. Now, would you like to be in that kingdom, worshipping God away from any enemies? Well, look, I don't know who's listening but I do know one thing. You are a sinner. The Bible says all over the place, many, many places in the Bible, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes me. That includes you. No one is exempt from that. Not even Mary, mother of Jesus. No one is exempt from that. But Christ died on the cross to save his people from their own sin. Christ died on the cross for me and possibly for you. I never presume that whoever is listening is definitely saved. I don't know that they are. But I'd like to hope so. The Bible tells us if you will just repent and believe in the gospel, you can be saved. Not of your own work, but of the work of Jesus. Because those things are not the things you do to be saved. Those are the things you do once you are saved as a sign that you are saved. God regenerates you and then you feel repentant and then you repent and then you believe. So repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. Recognize you are a sinner and repent of those sins. Thanks for watching this video. Look, lads, it was a bit all over the place today. I know, I'm sorry. Like I say, I'm not feeling so great. So just be grateful you got what you did, all right? Be grateful you could understand me. I presume of course you could. But like I say, um, thanks for watching this video. I hope you liked it and found it enjoyable. Most of all, I hope you found it edifying. Please be sure to join me again next time as we continue the study of the wonderful word of our wonderful God. Thank you for watching. Goodbye. God bless. And Slan Agus Gurma Habit.